and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, I spoke with Kamal Ahmed, who is Editorial Director of the BBC. Kamal spoke to me about what his job entails on a day-to-day basis, including shaking up uh, the BBC's content to suit much younger readers and listeners, as well as how to navigate uh, social media in times of very tricky and sensitive world events, such as the Christchurch shooting and how the BBC relays that. He also spoke about uh, beginning his career at The Observer and The Telegraph. Enjoy! Hello, so I am at the BBC HQ with Editorial Director of the BBC, Kamal Ahmed. Thank you, Kamal, for having me here today. Thank you very much for inviting me on. And congratulations on your recent promotion. It was in November, I think. (laughs) It was, yes. I took over in the first week of November after doing my final budget uh, and covering Philip Hammond. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But for now, let's let's go back a little bit to, uh, well, growing up, I suppose, in the... In Ealing, in was it the 70s, 80s? 70s, 80s, yes, yeah. in, uh, in, in West Ealing. Yes, I was there. Yes, I was, I was actually there on Saturday at a library that asked me back for a, a talk at my local library. Oh, I saw a, that. a library that I remember going to with my mother when I was about seven or eight. And it was the place that um, sort of, in a sense, taught me the, a love of reading. And it's quite, it's quite interesting. It was a very emotional time there. Mm. There were a couple of old school friends who I hadn't seen for. 40 years who came my old piano teacher so it was this it was a really interesting journey that I've been on going back to Northfield's public library in West Ealing around the corner from where I grew up it was very interesting to go there and just think back to your own history of kind of growing up in what was really what you might describe as mainstream suburban suburban England which is very much my background what do you remember reading at this library um, there were great books called Little Nose, I remember. Um, I can't remember the author. They were done for Jack and Ori, which was a BBC programme, which I think, golly, I'm struggling with my memory. I don't know if it's still... It, they, they brought it back quite recently, I remember. But it was a staple of my life was, was Jack and Ori. And they had the Jack and Ori books in the library. So you could see someone reading to you on telly, this new, quite newfangled colour television thing we used to have in the 1970s. And then you could go to the library and read the same books. So I remember, I remember doing that, um, doing that a lot. And then when I was a bit older, you know, Susan Cooper was a very um, uh, well-known author for younger people, uh, for, for for older younger people, so maybe maybe teenage years. I remember, I remember taking those, um, uh, reading those. But yes, I just remember just being in the library, sitting on the floor and reading a book. It was very much part of what you did, well mm. before the age of. <laughs> the internet and um, gaming and it's kind of what you did really you were either on your bike or you were reading a book or you were being told off by your mum for not doing your homework that was broadly <laughs> what we did when we were young it's quite much <laughs> seems loud nostalgically quite a quite a simple time well I'm only 26 but I, I still went to the library I mean I think ah, the generation well. below me was, was <laughs> yeah um, and what, what about in terms of journalism what do you remember reading the newspaper at these libraries? Uh, no, not at the library. I remember my mother um, had a newspaper and we would have the news and we'd have Radio 4 news. I remember I was talking to my son yesterday. We were driving um, uh, yesterday and I was talking to my son. I, I, I insist that my son listens to the radio news when we're in the car and That's my good. daughter. 
even though neither of them want to. They'd much rather radio be listening four. to. Um, it is Radio Four. They would much rather be listening to um, to um, the latest um, audio book that they downloaded. <laughs> but I, I always make sure we we uh, listen to the news. And I was talking to my son yesterday, and I said I remember when I was young, my mother would have. I remember PM Radio Four's PM was sort of that was bath time because the music came on. I remember the music, um, and then PM. And I remember some of the words, you know, Drew's Militia and Menachem Begin and uh, Sheikh Humani from the Middle East. I remember all the, there were these big Middle East. And I, I still remember the names of that era from from listening to Radio News. So my mother read a paper, I remember. What and I remember the that? radio. She, she was an ardent Guardian reader. So I grew up um, uh, reading or starting to read the Guardian as I got a bit older and an, and an observer reader as well and then listening to the radio news but also we'd have TV news on as well you know the big bulletins was a, was a sort of moment um, particularly around six o'clock you would sort of you know mum would watch the news or, or at, I think it was nine o'clock then the main evening bulletin was at nine o'clock and that's probably my bedtime so um, I do remember that yes I remember being quite a my mother was very engaged in politics um, as you'll Maybe if you've read the book, read my mm. book, she's very engaged in politics. So it was quite an engaged, uh, you know, uh, living with my mother. You knew uh, that the news was important. Yeah, yeah. And when did the idea of journalism as a career take on for you? Uh, it was a moment, really, and really a distinctive one. And what's really interesting, I know the person who I have to thank for my journalistic career, and he actually works at the BBC. Oh. A guy called John Rigby who was at Leeds University with me. We were together at Leeds University studying politics. And I must admit, I was slightly scratching around for something to do. I wasn't, you know, I was thinking about what clubs should I join. And, this is know, at Leeds. At Leeds yeah. University. And we were kind of, this is my second year at Leeds. And I was slightly scratching around for something to do. And um, he was doing some work on this thing called the student newspaper. Uh, called lead student and I, and he said hey, he said why don't you come down it's quite a laugh it's quite good fun people doing it you could discuss student politics there's a very um a very kind of lively student politics at Leeds um you know you can cover events and it's quite interesting you know I said well, okay I'll come down and I went down they had his basement room it was a it was a, it was a newspaper for the uh university and the polytechnic in, the, in those days Leeds um Polytechnic, which is now Leeds Metropolitan, was, was, was called a Polytechnic, and Leeds University, where I was. And it was a shared uh, room in a basement in the Polytechnic. So you had to walk to this basement. And, um, and um, it was kind of half drunk beer mugs and uh, <laughs> fags stubbed out. You know, in those days you could smoke inside, and mm. there were fags sort of stabbed, stubbed out in tins of beer, and it was it sort of smelt a bit, and it was kind of a bit weird. But I caught the bug almost the minute I walked through the door. You kind of got this 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 bug about this idea that you could write down information that could be useful to people. So we, you know, we would cover student elections and big rows about ENTS, what we called ENTS entertainment, and but also student safety. I remember we did a lot on, and it was all the period when student loans were just about to start. First time um, that. Uh, students would take on loans for university education which was a complete change obviously what had gone before so it's a very febrile time in student politics and big marches in London and just suddenly realising that this was an incredible incredible part of the sort of good society really not to be too sort of pompous about it this idea that 
it needed journalists to to sort of investigate ideas and try and communicate to people about those ideas so they knew how you know they they knew about things they needed to know about it was a really important i suddenly realized that was an important part of i was studying politics so we were all discussing big ideas and and what we did and everything and um yeah we realized that this was a big and important journalism i got the bug the vocation i suppose for journalism just that and i thank john rigby for that and and you've spoken about this in your book um the in terms of you know the racism that you experience and you know how diversity is a big issue in in the journalistic industries um how realistic was it for you the idea of journalism i mean having grown up probably not seeing that many people of color on the on the tv and maybe you know the garden was probably better than most but there's still a massive i'm not sure it was i don't know is it not? It's, oh, do, you know, do you know what is the odd thing that's a really good question the odd thing was i never thought about it i yes. never thought that my ethnicity uh would have when i started out yeah. would have an effect on my career and i think that's something to do with my mother and father um inculcated in me an idea that don't let your critics frame your life mm. or don't let those who might be against you or prejudiced affect what you want to do or your ambitions and i've always held that very deep as an idea and i suppose i just almost blindly refused to let it affect my judgments about what i should be doing it wasn't until much later that i thought I wonder how it has affected, or if it has affected. I'm not suggesting for a moment that it may have done. Uh, I don't know, but it's not until it wasn't until much later that I wondered whether um, my ethnicity had affected my career. Because of course, there's no counterfactual. You have mm. no way of judging because you don't know what the difference would have been if I had been a white guy called David from West London who knows who knows mm. so you can't make that judgment um i don't believe it has affected my um uh, career that's not to say i've not had hurdles but lots of people have hurdles in their career for many different reasons some of them not visible um but whether you're a woman or whether you're a disabled person or whether you um you know there are lots of reasons why people may have um hurdles in their life whether you have you know mental health issues there are all sorts of things so I'm not there's no special pleading for me you know you say I kind of you know I have detailed in the book a couple of incidents where you're kind of wow that happened yeah. kind of thing but I'm in no way I in no way wanted my book and certainly my mm. life has not been um, a kind of battle against racism no. and this this is a sector and an industry the media industry in Britain that I think um, in many, many ways we can be very proud of. And I've certainly had uh, a very lucky uh, career to find myself now in such a privileged position. Yes, I think the issue is more, it's not even just about in um, organisations being more diverse in terms of their hiring, but also just the sense of certainly my mentoring young, young journalists is them feeling that they just don't belong in this world, which I can see why they would have, not, not even just about ethnicity, but um, mm. backgrounds in terms of class and... Um, I think it's a, I think it's a massive challenge for leadership now yeah. because your generation are very <coughs> through a big change. <coughs> My generation were looking for acceptance, 
we wanted to be one of the in crowd. And I certainly feel from talking to colleagues here that the, that the generation now who are young in their 20s want respect mm. and want um, to be given a fair crack of the whip as anyone else's and want the opportunities irrespective of their backgrounds. And that's a different uh, discussion we need to have and we need to respond to that. I'm now in a position of, you know, I'm very fortunate in a senior position at, at this organisation and have been at others. <clears throat> but we have to think about um, diversity in a different way from, the, from how we thought about it when in the 90s when I was making my way in my career. Um, where it was much more <clears throat> about schemes and um, uh, how do we support young ethnic minority or how do we support women in, in work <clears throat> and now it's about the leadership um, um, having to think differently about how we encourage young talent to flourish mm. and it's a, it's a slightly different debate and I think we've got a really important debate to be had in amongst all organisations not just the media but lots of different sectors about how we modernise the sort of diversity, um, the diversity discussion. And I think it's a really big thing that we need to start grappling with. And I think some of the language still feels like it is from the 1990s. I recognise the language of inclusion and diversity from the 90s. And I think we need a fresher approach, which is all around talent, opportunity, if anyone needs the special schemes, frankly, it's us as leaders. It's not young people who need special schemes. It's us a lot who need special schemes about understanding how do you create workplace cultures that allow talent to flourish. Is that something you'll be thinking about? Yeah, it's part strategy? of my job. Yeah, so one of my jobs is working with Katie Lloyd, who is the development director here at BBC News and Current Affairs, but also colleagues across the News and Current Affairs organisation about culture about how we look at how we have meetings, about how we think about how we ensure people are heard in different ways. I mean, I, I grew up in an industry that was very top-down, very hierarchical, very ordered. Now, there are sometimes good reasons for that. You know, the six o'clock news has to come out at six o'clock. The 10 o'clock news has to come out at 10 o'clock. The Today programme starts at six o'clock in the morning. Radio One Newsbeat starts at 12.45 and 5.45 in the afternoon, come what may. So there is a reason for structures and order and a degree of discipline, but also there's a need to think about how we listen in meetings, how we broaden our um, story choice. You know, John Snow at Channel 4 News has spoke about Grenfell, and mm. how Grenfell was a wake-up moment in terms of what connections did we really have uh, for, uh, amongst different audiences who have a different type of life from the the type of people that we connect with maybe more easily and certainly the type of people we have in this organisation who come from you know a certain type of background this is not just about gender, ethnicity you know uh, uh, other areas of equality it's about socio-economic background it's about geography these are all big and important challenges for the BBC and we are doing a lot of thinking on that Yes, and I th I've been aware currently of the issues with kind of Radio 4 and BBC Sounds in terms of, you know, this Radio 4 aware that they need to kind of diversify their content co uh, content to appeal to younger audiences, but then they're aware that younger audiences don't really listen to Radio 4, so what's the point? And you're just alienating your core um, listenership. 
and be. You should come to our meetings. That's exactly the, how we frame our meetings. You're quite right. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, is that something that you're focusing on as well? Is that a big struggle for you, being able to maintain your kind of core readers and listeners? Well, so I think you're right. Anyone who's been through a big change in any type of organisation will know that it's always that balance between core and new. Mm. And you, the worst thing you can do is try and reinvent yourself for a what you might describe as a new audience, fail to do that, and at the same time alienate your core audience. Is that what, uh, what's happening, do you think? No, I don't. But that's the danger always with any organisation. At The Observer, we were very clear on this. We wanted The Observer to be a, a slightly warmer, broader type of paper. But also, on that first launch date, we did a big campaign with Amnesty International. The Observer was famous in the 60s for the place that Am- Amnesty was invented and we did a big reminder for readers about what the Observer was. So we did a big thing with Amnesty International, um, 40 years on from its founding, uh, a new type of campaign which wasn't about letter writing, but was about email writing and about social media, or not, it can't be social media, I think it's a bit early for social media, but about sort of digital connection. Mm. So it was modernising Amnesty, the Amnesty message, and we worked with Amnesty. So. We launched the new paper, different size, some different stories, different approach to some news. But at the same time, we landed a big core observer message to readers. Don't worry, it's still the paper you love. And that's the same thing you always have to think about in big, highly regarded and much loved by audiences like the BBC is when you're thinking about modernising. And also, as you suggest, When you think about things like Radio 4, Radio 4 is an absolutely remarkable um, uh, station which produces incredible, incredible content. You cannot put that at risk. But where you might, it is modernising, but where you might do your more entrepreneurial, more risky type material would be, as you just touched on the Sounds app, so we're rebuilding radio iPlayer into sounds Um, and there you can play with different types of um, content and we're looking at how you would do a bulletin uh, in a way that is is slightly more conversational Mm. slightly warmer slightly more letting the audience lead where we go to some extent Um, people walking around the newsroom just a very different conversational warm feel and we're going to try that in sounds, we would not expect the Radio 4 1800, the 6pm news on Radio 4, one of the most important bulletins we produce, to suddenly come up with this, whoa, we're going to be completely different and all, you know, that wouldn't be the right place for it. So it's about where's the right place, uh, how do you do that, and where does the audience want it and at what time? Because the big test for us is we were built to produce radio originally, Mm. then to produce television, and then to produce online. And we need to move to a world where there's visual content, where there's audio content, and where there's text content, and what's the right way to do that. And also moving from a world of appointment news, I get the news at 6 or at 10 or at 1 o'clock in the afternoon or at 6 a.m. on the Today programme or at 12.45 on Newsbeat Radio 1, moving from that to news when I want it. And that's a, that's a big, those are two big changes. 
the other thing I notice certainly when when dealing with kind of older readers across publications I've worked for is the the tone they they really hate the tone that's being taken recently in terms of being, you know they hate the idea of being woke and speaking in the in a way that's too politically kind of correct and that's one thing that I'm seeing is majorly alienating older audiences across all you know all types of journalism so it's not even just about tech and what types of content but just the tone as well which I thought is a, a good thing but it's interesting how that is that's also an issue have you noticed yeah, that? about the but yeah about the tone about the tone you use I think that I haven't seen any research that says that older audiences if, if they are our more traditional audiences which they probably are we need to be careful with that language, but I think audiences understand that. The language is not the language of the 1950s. We can't mm. be expected to use that anymore. I think all our audiences understand that we want to be you know, respectful in the way we report on the world and, and careful about how we report on the world and that the BBC is for all audiences. It, this kind of debate in commercial media, I mean, I, well, nearly all my career is in commercial media, Guardian, Observer, um, Telegraph Group, Scotsman Group in Scotland. Um, you know, they, they can have they can have an agenda and they have an agenda and that's absolutely brilliant that they have an agenda and so they can be critical or not critical of certain ways of reporting we we have to you know i've been here what nearly five years now mostly on air but now as you say in management and you, you do realize the bbc is sort of much loved by its audiences but also we have a duty obviously to impartiality as part of our charter and to reflecting all audiences, you know. So we've been having a big debate here around, obviously, the New Zealand mm. um, attacks and what do we call them? And is it a terrorist attack? And um, and we've had deep and 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 excellent conversations about the tone that we do there. What do we do about the video? How much of the video do we show? Those are very carefully calibrated conversations in this organisation that we do. I think probably people are a bit surprised. We did an audience, what we called an audience day, where they... Um, the Brexit. Yeah, the yes. Brexit day. We did this audience day. And what was really interesting, they came in. There was a great guy from um, Canary Island um, who was cross with the BBC about how he considered we'd, we'd been too pro-Remain. And he came in, and the one moment I did think that's such an that's such a wonderful thing to see was at the end of the day. He said, "I didn't realise how much thinking you did before we see what you've done." You know, right. he came to all the meetings. He saw how much work went into. Is this you know, duly balanced? Is this fair? Are we looking at all areas? Are we thinking about all audiences? He also didn't realise how much we did. You know, we do, what, 90 hours of television news a day or something. We do more than that on uh, radio, 200 stories a day online. He went away, I hope, thinking, wow, a lot of work goes into this. Uh, and they think about these things. Now, we don't always get it right, of course. We make mistakes like everywhere does. And, and in an organisation with lots and lots of people producing globally and domestic so much in, uh, news and current affairs, of course we're going to make mistakes, but he saw that there was honest endeavour in the BBC to try and get it right. And I was, um, I was, you know, um, having, a, having oversight of the approach to the New Zealand, um, uh, horrific attacks in New Zealand um, um, on f last Friday. Um, 
you realise how much discussion and care goes into tone, language. How yeah, I saw Sky it. got absolutely lambasted because they used the word calm attacker in a tweet. And that causes mass fury on, really? on Twitter. So yeah. it's, it's very new. You know, people pick yeah. up on the slightest. It's a different word. world, you see. Yeah. It's a different world because, as you say, everything now, there's a very. Um, there are very there are platforms that can become very loud very quickly about supposed errors mm. and we've got to be careful to remember that that's only part of the conversation uh, and you can see something being very aggressively debated on Twitter but it's only still involving a very small number of people who are very yes, very certain cross. demographic yeah. that use Twitter to that doesn't them. mean we should ignore it but also means we should keep it in perspective and remember that the BBC is still hugely trusted by um, our audiences. And you, you've worked at The Observer and The Telegraph, um, which are obviously not impartial. How have you found it moving from there where you know there was an agenda that you had to keep to and you say you read The Guardian when you were younger to coming to BBC where you have to... Be, you know that engender is, is no longer it's a really it's really interesting and it's a it's a it's an it's an interesting and very important challenge we have of course uh, in-depth guidelines which you read when you come in you have to think incredibly carefully about stories so i was economics editor through the brexit referendum and post the brexit referendum obviously one of the most keenly contested bits of the whole argument around brexit was economics and the possible economic effects you just have to ensure that you're giving due regard to all sides of the debate, but also you're not doing false equivalents on the one hand, on the other hand. You know, impartiality doesn't mean simple stopwatch balance. And you have to understand that as economics editor here, I had to make a judgment on where the weight of evidence fell. So it wasn't just saying, well, on the one hand, some people say the economy could do very well up. Uh, if we have Brexit and on the other hand some other economists say it could do very badly I had to say on the one hand, hand the Bank of England the International Monetary Fund um, all forecasts from uh, nearly all reputable uh, economic forecasting houses point in one direction there are a limited number of reputable economists who think differently and here's what they think but you wanted the audience to realise that the weight was in one direction. Doesn't mean that's correct or is the right thing that's going to happen, but that's where the weight of evidence right. sits. And we were very careful in a way um, uh, that's unique to the BBC, talking that through in almost, I remember it relentlessly, every single day we spoke about impartiality, the correct level of balance between different arguments, different evidence set. Of course, the good thing about economics, it has data. This is harder when you're talking about culture and feeling. That's mm. a much harder area. And we have to keep in pushing ourselves on the idea of how do we reflect? I don't think we've got it wrong. I, we will, we will have made mistakes. But in your personal work i mean do you ever do you find it difficult especially because you've written a lot of personal pieces especially for you know the three pieces that you sent to me to look at before very personal for the observer do you miss that 
I miss writing for print. I love newspapers. It was my first love, and I love newspapers. And I still, I'm, I'm one of those very old-fashioned people that walk to a newsagent in the morning and buy all the papers. I still, every single one. on my desk, yeah, on my desk every morning are all the national newspapers, and I read the newspapers in front of me whilst I drink my morning coffee. So I'm still very traditional. I love newspapers to an extent. I, I miss it. Yeah, I miss the writing. I mean, I've. I've done a book, so you know I've written a book which which maybe was slightly the itch of writing mm. that I wanted to scratch. Um, so I do miss print, but of course this job comes with huge um, privileges and huge challenges and a great reinvention, a possibility of thinking differently about journalism. You know, the BBC News and Current Affairs is the most is the is the biggest you know, global news operation and it's a great place to be and to be Can you describe inspired what job, kind of a daily, I know it must change every day. But... Yeah, <laughs> so we, I'm just seeing you now what it's mid-morning so I've been in the nine o'clock which is the main uh, meeting we have about what are we doing today. So I get in about seven in the morning, I read the papers in a very old-fashioned way, I listen to some of the main outputs, so BBC Breakfast, the Today programme, Radio 5 Live, um, the bulletins on Radio 1, Radio 2, etc., the news channel, Global, so you try and have a little spin through. We have all the agendas on our computer screen so I can see the running orders of different programmes. The 9 o'clock is the main meeting. And then I've got lots of other meetings today about some of the broader stuff we're doing, some of the what we call editorial ambitions. We have a big meeting this afternoon uh, looking at some of the bigger issues. So we'll talk about how do we tackle white suit premises and what is how big is that and how do we get under the skin for audiences around that um so you have lots of sort of regulatory meetings um ofcom have recently announced a, a review of uh, bbc news and working with them and i'm going to be leading on some of that work for uh, news and news and current affairs um i also have what's called so I have, i'm on the news group board so i have responsibility for the on the news group board for question time so that's another one which obviously has lots of challenges and, and fiona started brilliantly but that's another part of my job so the day is different dealing with different bits of um output also radio one newsbeat comes under my um uh, is under my directorate um lots of our digital coverage digital current affairs some video um, the explainers, news mm. analysis, so the explaining the news, which is as, as important as reporting the news to us. So a lot of that comes under my area. Visual journalism, so the look and feel of the BBC, you know, those graphics you see, the use of the BBC red tile, um, partnerships we might do in the future. Um, you know, all, all this you know, big area. So this sort of day-to-day, -day, which is kind of how are we doing the news today? But that's obviously with lots and lots of other people. You know, it's not, that's not just down to me at all. I'm not, um, uh, but I, I have a role in that meeting. I chaired the meeting this morning. I chair it once or twice a week. Other colleagues on news group board chair the other days. Um, and then there's the more strategic approach, which touches on the big programs, as I say, question time, newsbeat, etc., digital current affairs, explainers, relationships with our regulators. Um, you know, then there's the sort of the strategic part of my job as well. And why did you want this job? Was it just kind of the natural progression for you as you climbed through the racks, <laughs> or was it something you'd always wanted? Because you're shaping. If I'm brutally honest, I do like running, trying to run things, help or helping to run things. I did love my time at the Observer. I was political editor of the Observer, and then I became head of news. And I do enjoy trying to, as you say, shape 
think about carefully how we engage with audiences. You know, journalism is the most vital of professions now. You know, not more than ever because I don't. Th- I, journalists are always telling us that we're living in amazing times. I mean, I lived through, you know, nine eleven. You know, the Iraq War, the financial crisis. You know, there are lots of big things that happen, and Brexit is another big thing that's mm. happening. But nevertheless, um, given you've touched on, you know, agendered news, trust in news, misinformation, fake news, you know, the BBC has got such an important role at the moment to be offered the chance to try and shape some of that with, you know, all my fantastic colleagues to work across the BBC as well with BBC News, um, sorry, with BBC One, BBC Two, Children's, um, Sport, Factual, um, uh, you know, BBC Three, BBC Four all the radio sounds, you know, iPlayer, given a chance to do that in your career, I think you'd be you'd be hard pressed to turn it down. And I don't know how involved you are with bringing in kind of the new generations into into the BBC, but have you I've certainly noticed when kind of organizing work experience with people is that less and less young there are less and less young journalists. People are there I've noticed less people coming into the industry. Is that something you've noticed? Really? I haven't no, haven't. that's interesting. No, I think I think our big challenge is um, we have a lot of young, very talented people in the, the BBC. You know, how do we ensure, as I say, this is a generation that demands respect. Uh, and how do we ensure that they want to come to the BBC because it's the best place What's to What's the work? demographic like in terms of kind of, you know, age at the BBC? How, how oh, I don't know. No, I don't know. Actually, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I don't know what our demographic is. We're certainly, we're, what we are doing is we have an under 30s panel to help us think uh, differently about story choice and how we do that. We're looking at how we change our meeting structure to look at how we bring young voices into um, our meetings more obviously, more easily. And more young people being hired. Do you, I don't know if you know this, but do you, do you think that would make sense if you're trying to diversify the content? We want to make sure, it touches again on your question, doesn't it, on your key point, which is so correct. You know, we've got, we are, we are, we have the traditional and the core, and we have vast expertise in this organisation of whatever age. I don't want to make it into, we've got to get more young people through the door. I don't think that's the, that's sort of the right way to think about it. We want a diverse set of views in this building, whether that's older people from different socioeconomic backgrounds or older people from different parts of the UK or different parts of the world, whether it's younger people. You know, in a way, the challenge is broadening our our look and feel internally so that we can better do our journalism for audiences externally. And I know you haven't got long, so we'll just whiz through the mm. final questions. For a young journalist, what, what kind of advice would you give? I know you you studied at City University. That's the question, you know, young journalists are always asking, is it worth uh, doing that master's? Would you would you say it was? I think there are as many routes into journalism as there are journalists. So I wouldn't advise any particular route. City certainly helped was me hugely. Newspaper? Mine was newspaper. City helped me for two main reasons. Giving you some of the academic underpinning of the media mm. is very important. Also understanding law, for example. I do wish I'd done a and doing, Yeah, and doing and having basic shorthand and the basic smarts to be a journalist is really important. It's BBC's, I've noticed shorthand is a big draw for when hiring at the BBC. Oh, is it? Well, that's very good. Yeah. I applaud it uh, royally. Um, but the second point is also the network. Yeah. So I am still very good friends with people who are now very senior in the media, who I first met at City University. And we know this job, you know, 
it's 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 great to know uh, a number of people who have faced different challenges in different ways and to be able to just pick up the phone and know who they are. But that that having said that, frankly, if you are a really good journalist, and by that I mean someone who understands what information uh, do audiences need and how can I get it to them to make their world easier for them to navigate. If you get that, frankly, it doesn't matter whether you've been to City or to you know your local high school and that's it, you can you will be a brilliant journalist because that is the lifeblood of journalism, um, is that ability to gain the trust of the people you're doing your journalism for, getting them to speak to you, being able to understand how power works, what, what the way to report on news and storytell in a way that engages the audience that it matters for. If you can do those things, then you've got a career in journalism. Did you ever consider magazine journalism? Because your long read about with Alistair Campbell, your interview with Alistair Campbell about his friend who died and um, his, his coping with that was, um, well, it was, it was brilliant. I thought it was, you have really eye, an eye for detail and it, you, know, you felt like you were in the room the whole time, which is kind of the essence of magazine journalism, is creating that atmosphere. Was that something you considered? No, I mean, I was lucky to work for a Sunday newspaper. So yeah. we, I, was, I, I was able to write long form regularly which was really mm. fortunate um and at the observer certainly the observer was a writer's paper it was a paper that broke great stories but also had rich rich writing and i was very fortunate to be able to write for the observer magazine for um review uh, as well as long form for news so i've always enjoyed that part of it and I, as you touch on i've i slightly replaced here i don't do writing of that type anymore uh but you know i've I've written a book. I'm, you know, I, I sort of, I've, as I say, I've got the writing bug. I've moved the writing bug to a slightly different bit of my life. Yeah. Did you read any magazines? Um, I do. I read, the sl sadly, the slightly obvious one, Spectator, Economist, New Statesman, uh, as well. But um, we, um, uh, but yeah, I, I, I read. I'm a, I'm a voracious reader. I mean, I read, you know, as much as I can beyond all the other things we should be doing. Yeah. Well, Kamal, thank you very much. I thank you very much. So thank you. Really good to meet you. Thank you. So, Simon, did you enjoy my chat with Kamal? I enjoyed it very much. Um, I thought it covered a lot of very interesting ground. I thought you, you weaned him off BBC management speak as much as you could. Because he was very neutral on a lot of subjects, yeah, which I understand. But um, I, I thought you, you got beneath the surface. Um, and interesting as someone who's moved from having a, a kind of predominantly writing job in print media to doing a big executive job yeah. uh, to see how that changed it's a shame and he can't do any more kind of personal some of his personal pieces were some of his best actually I think he really enjoyed I think that's why he wrote his book as he said yeah anyway this has been Always Take Notes hosted by me Simon Acom and me Eleanor Halls our producer is Nicola Keane Zara Hankir handles our social media our graphic design is by James Edgar and our score is by Jess Danheiser uh, you can find us on social media where always take notes on Instagram, take notes always on Twitter, and you can find us on iTunes. And it would be great if you could leave a review, rate, and subscribe. And if you fancy contributing to our crowdfunding page on Patreon, that would also be great. Many thanks. Mm -hmm.